If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Afternoon, Sun 770 CHQR. Rob Breckenridge with you. More time for your calls coming up, 403-974-8255. I want to get the latest uh, on the efforts uh, underway to develop a uh, homegrown COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, efforts that are happening, I think, to a large extent, you could say in spite of, not because of, various levels of government. We've certainly heard that frustration expressed by uh, many of the companies and institutes that have been working on this, that there just hasn't been sufficient support. Now, some new data was released today by Providence Therapeutics from their phase one clinical trial on their COVID-19 vaccine candidates, some very encouraging data. Uh, But it comes at a time when the company is seriously reconsidering whether it has a future in this country. Joining us to talk more about all of this is the CEO of Providence Therapeutics, Brad Sorensen, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Brad, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Well, let's start with the the positive news today. As mentioned, uh, your company has released some uh, data from your phase one clinical trial, and it looks very favorable. Tell us a bit more about uh, what, what was in that. Yeah, uh, I mean, as you know, it's a day in in uh, in in Providence's history. You know, you you always go into the clinic and you always hope for uh, you know a certain outcome. And uh, it's fantastic when uh, when it comes out even better than expected. And uh, we we've got a, a very very good vaccine. We're extremely excited. Now, this, for people who don't know, this is a messenger RNA vaccine, so a similar platform to what Pfizer and Moderna have uh, developed. And so tell us a bit more about, I guess, since we have two that we're familiar with, what your results show and, and how they compare to those. Right. So a phase one trial is focused on uh, safety and tolerability. Uh, all of these mRNA vaccines are safe. Um, Ours had a, uh, a better tolerability profile. So if you're talking, you know, um, if you're talking, you know, a swelling around the injection site or pain and fatigue and headache and all of the other adverse events that you can get when you get vaccinated, uh, we had uh, significantly lower incidences of, uh, of those events. So we have what we're referring to as a much more tolerable vaccine than the uh, than the other two. And what about the immune response? What what does this uh, information tell us about that side of it? Yeah, so that was that was you know we knew we had a good vaccine from our preclinical work, um, but the there's sort of two measures in our press release. There's a overall. Um, IgG titers. So this is just like all of the available antibodies that uh, that are uh, generated by your vaccine, and those are extremely high. Uh, but as you drill down and you're looking at the neutralizing antibodies, these are the ones that are really, you know, shutting down the the virus. Um, 
and we got very, very good results uh, in that. You know, if there was a group out of Stanford, you know, independently was looking at the Pfizer vaccine and they, they you know, they did a paper on it and uh, they used the same techniques we use, the same assay, the same setup to evaluate and um, and we, we outperformed. Uh, we clearly outperformed on the, on the neutralizing antibody side. So we were, you know, in, in we, we use the word very favorable. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, in, in scientific terms, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's good language. And it's interesting, too, as I was reading, so this, this trial looked at three different dosing sizes, essentially, uh, yep. 16, 40, and, and 100 uh, micrograms, I think it is, right? Um, and so going forward, it looks as though that, that, that middle one is what you're going to uh, use going into the, the phase two trial. Talk a bit about what, what is, is pulling you in that direction. Yeah, so um, and all three doses actually got uh, 100% neutralization. So we actually, like I said, we've got a very, very effective vaccine. Um, what wasn't published in that is we've also looked at how does you know in 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 um animal uh, you know clinical or, or sorry laboratory setting how does our vaccine appear to to work against the variants okay mm-hmm. um so all of the you know all of the assays and everything that was reported is a, is a, you know against the primary wuhan strain um, but we've done some looking um, in our labs at how does this perform against the variants, and there is more of a dose dependency. So whereas if all we were worried about was the original Wuhan strain, we could go with the 60 micrograms and, and we'd have a fantastic vaccine. Um, but because of these other variants that are coming out there, we want to, you know, we want to belt and suspenders this thing. And uh, we know that by going up to the uh, to that 40, um, that we're getting protection, uh, better protection against variants. And so that's, um, that's something. And that, that'll come out, like we said, when we publish and we go to a peer-reviewed, uh, all of that will be made you know, available to the public. Uh, you know, all of the data, we're committed to transparency. So that'll come out as well. But that, that was the main criteria for us to select that dose, was to make sure that uh, we had something that would be um, very effective. Uh, in real world setting, yeah, and it looks like this sets you up nicely for a phase two clinical trial, which probably a pretty quick turnaround, maybe as as early as next month. I'm reading. Yeah, yeah, we we want to go into phase two in June, and we're already starting pre recruitment, and um, and uh, we're just waiting to get confirmation that we've secured the Pfizer doses necessary because we're going to go head to head against Pfizer in that trial, and I'm I'm excited about that. Um, yeah. I uh, I like I like the whole David and Goliath story, and I look right. forward to yeah. putting one between the eyes. Well, and I do wonder then if you know this helps maybe force government's hand a little bit, or do you think governments have been waiting to see some of this data, and that's why they've been a little more tepid in offering support? What, what do you make of kind of what what this might represent going forward in terms of that support? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I haven't my. You know, it's not that I'm frustrated with bureaucracy. I mean, that's that's part of government. I mean, that it is the way it is. Um, as it relates to the federal government, I, I'm not happy with the vaccine task force. I, I'm not happy that it's so um, opaque. 
you know, you know, you got these these unaccountable individuals um, in a room, you know, making decisions, advising the government, and nobody has any transparency into what's going on with that. And uh, I'm quite frankly, I don't believe they're qualified to evaluate our program. I mean, they know as much about ma- manufacturing messenger RNA as most of your listeners do. Like they just, it, it's we're the experts in this space, yeah. and so. Um, you know, this idea that suddenly we generated this data in Shazam, you know, we went from a nothing company into this great company uh, is, you know, that's probably how they're going to spin it. But that's not true. We've been a great company from day one. We've known what we're doing from day one. And um, and now the data is there to back it up. And, um, you know, hopefully we finally get some, some breakthrough with, with the federal government. And, and hopefully this lights a fire into the Alberta government. I mean... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's frustrating when I read the news that, you know, we've they asked us for a proposal, we submitted the proposal, and they're saying we'll get back to you in the summer. I mean, uh, there, there's got to be a way to increase the urgency there somehow. Well, and this was a statement that, uh, that was put out, um, a spokesperson for Minister uh, Champagne, who says, we recognize the potential of Providence Therapeutics technology. We provided them with significant early financial support to assist in the development of the first ever vaccine. This support included up to $10 million through two different federal programs. The National Research Council has been working closely with Providence staff on securing additional financial support for the phase two trials. This included a National Research Council representative speaking with the company just last week on the matter, which I guess would refer to the previous week. So your, your reaction to that? Yeah, you know, all true. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're being managed. Uh, there's no question yeah. about it. Um, you know, we did receive some some support for our phase one trial of of the quote 10 million. We've received less than five million of that to date. Um, and so, you know, and I expect that we will receive the remaining five million. Um, but it's you know, it's not easy to get. <laughs> Let's put it that yeah. way. Um, and it's all back ended. It's after we've all spent everything and then we have to try and claw it back from the government. Um, in addition to that, like, so, right. We, t- we had conversations with the NRC this week about receiving additional support for a phase two trial, which is we want to start in June. Um, but to, to try, you know, sort of nail a point home, we're running a comparator trial against Pfizer. We need 500 doses of Pfizer to run the trial. We've been asking for two months for access to those 500 doses. And we haven't gotten an answer. We still haven't gotten an answer. I was on the call yesterday with with the Strategic Innovation Fund and, and NRC, and they could not give us an answer. And they said, when's your, when's your drop dead data? Like, well, we have to submit next week for uh, approval to proceed with Health Canada. And if we don't have the doses, we can't submit. So our drop dead date is Friday. And um, they're like, well, hopefully we can, you know, get an answer to you back by then. But mm-hmm. we're talking 500 doses of Pfizer vaccine in order to run, you know, an incredibly important trial in Canada. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, like I said, there's there's a difference between, you know, receiving some funding and getting true support. And what we're pushing for is true support. And what we really need is we need a commitment to support the manufacturing, not just the clinical trial. Right. And where are we at on, on the manufacturing side of things? Right. So we we can produce 
up to 200 million doses a year between um, our partners at Northern RNA and Emergent Biosolutions in Winnipeg, uh, Northern RNAs in Calgary. And so um, we've set this up. Now, you you know, your listeners may have heard that, you know, we're talking about um, leaving Canada. Uh, we are evaluating opportunities outside of Canada. Um, but we're in the middle of a pandemic, and we can produce 200 million doses here in Canada. We've, we've already done the work to, to enable these organizations to do what we need them to do. We have a moral obligation to produce those vaccines. There's people in the world today that need those vaccines, and, and it will save lives if we do that. So we're going to. We're going to, you know, we're going to use Northern RNA. We're going to use Emergent. We're going to produce those vaccines. They may not be sold in Canada. They may be sold to other countries around the world that need them. Um, and once the crisis has passed, we'll take a very hard look as to whether we're going to keep that production in Canada or whether we'll move it outside. Um, but we're not, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. These are life-saving vaccines. Um, yeah, we're not going to we're not going to shut things down. We've worked too hard to get things ready to go. Um, but in the meantime, you know, are we going to develop future programs in Canada? Are we going to you know look at moving the company out of Canada and doing future development out of Canada? Yeah, we're going to take a hard look at that. Um, you know, if if we can't get support and we can't get you know, the federal government to at least talk to us about buying doses that are made in Canada. Um, I think anybody who runs a business would would uh, have to take a serious look as to whether to stay here or not. So as of now, as of this date, the, the only level of government in Canada that has made a commitment would be Manitoba, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And and they've they've been fantastic. I mean, from day one, their first question to us is, what do you need? I, I, I'll never forget that phone call. It was like it was like, you know, water to somebody dying in the desert. It was like, you know, I got on the phone. The guy's name was Justin. He's like, "What do you need?" I'm like, "We need an order." And he says, "Okay." And less than a week later, we had an order. Um, and their primary concern from day one is is how to advance the program, how to keep the manufacturing in in Canada, and they want to make sure that Manitoba is included in any clinical trials. Uh, mm-hmm. So there will be a site in Winnipeg for a phase two trial. Um, you know, it's just when, you know, when you have, when you have, you know, some strategic capacity, things can happen, right? Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, much more at ProvidenceTherapeutics.com. Brad, uh, congrats on, on the uh, results today, and uh, we'll keep a uh, close eye on this as it moves forward. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us here today. Uh, that is Brad Sorensen. He is the CEO of Providence Therapeutics, providencetherapeutics.com. You want to read more about the work they're doing. So uh, some pretty encouraging results from their phase one clinical trials set to move on to phase two. But as he said, even on that, you know, they're, they're looking for some support. There's, there's an opportunity now that there's an established, approved mRNA vaccine. Well, there's a couple uh, that you can do that, that more direct comparison. And so you can do a a shorter phase two trial where you've got a group with this vaccine, a group with that vaccine, and then you can compare the results. But, you know, it's not a big number. They just need some kind of commitment from government to say, look, here's 500 doses. That seems pretty minute in the grand scheme of things. You know, this brinksmanship 
is political theater. Unfortunately, millions of Americans and Canadians are likely to pay the price for it. And hey, well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. That is the voice of the senior vice president with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. We've got business leaders in Michigan, Ohio, and Wisconsin joining forces with their Canadian counterparts in this legal fight over the Line 5 pipeline, which runs from Canada in through Wisconsin and Michigan, and of course, uh, back up into Ontario. Michigan's governor has ordered the pipeline to be closed as of today. We heard yesterday from Enbridge, they're of the position uh, that they are legally operating the pipeline, that unless the court tells them otherwise, they will continue to do so. So we're now into, I don't know if uncharted territory is the right way to put it, we are now at this deadline that Michigan's governor had set. And so it certainly ups the tension, if nothing else. There is some court-ordered mediation happening, and that's set to resume next week. As I say, we've got Canada's legal involvement now. We've got business leaders uh, from these three states getting involved. So hopefully there's some momentum on Canada's side. It's not just about Canada. Obviously, shutting down this pipeline would impact uh, both sides of the border. And, of course, this comes at a time when a pretty major U.S. pipeline is offline. And uh, maybe you're seeing the stories already about uh, gas shortages and price increases and a lot of uh, a lot of the eastern U.S., the northeastern U.S. Uh, so, yeah, the, the timing of all of this is very interesting because that would have um, probably the same, maybe an even worse impact on much of Canada if this pipeline were to be closed. So what are our options here going forward? How are we going to resolve all of this and is momentum are the facts on canada's side well joining us to talk a bit more about where things stand uh, as of today now this deadline day very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon dennis mcconaughey is a former energy executive energy issues commentator he's an author as well his most recent book is called breakdown the pipeline debate and the threat to canada's future much more at his website dialogues on canadian energy d-o-c-e .ca. Dennis McConaughey, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Always good to be with you, Rob. Thank you. So, I mean, unfortunately, we got to May 12th. We didn't get a resolution. But what's your sense of, of what's changed or where we're at as of today? Well, as of today, nothing has changed. And it's going to be a real game of chicken as we march down to midnight, which is uh, Governor Whitmer's deadline. My own view is that it is highly unlikely that she's going to send in Michigan State Police and try to start closing valves. In mm -hmm. fact, it's probable that the actual control uh, of that pipeline exists in a control room that's in some a facility in, a, in Canada operated uh, <clears throat> at, at long distance telemetrically by Enbridge. Uh, more likely, the thing will still run tomorrow, and Whitmer will probably resort to some fines or some attempts at confiscation, all under the justification that she has the legal jurisdiction to force the closure of this pipeline. And I think it's important for your uh, listeners to understand, this pipeline has operated for almost as long as I am alive, uh, which is roughly almost 70 years. And that is a pipeline that has consistently and reliably supplied oil uh, from Alberta, not just as, uh, Ontario and Quebec, but other important parts of the upper Great Lakes, not only uh, crude oil to run the refineries of those regions, but also natural gas liquids. And there has not been a major spill incident in the Straits of Mackinac. In fact, there even wasn't even a spill incident even after a few years ago 
uh, a ship anchor was actually uh, hit the the trench that this pipe is laid in. And all that is in the context of Enbridge trying to uh, proceed with a new tunnel that would make the safety of this pipe across those straits even more secure. And for all of that, Governor Whitmer is intent on basically causing a massive supply disruption, uh, certainly to central Canadian uh, oil refineries, but also uh, a significant number of, of the upper Great Lakes refinery infrastructure, um, especially in Indiana and in Ohio. So this is going to be, I think, a day where um, whatever she does at the stroke of midnight, we can all wait and see. Uh, I think there's one other comment to be made here that's significant. The Biden administration has said we're going to leave it up to the courts. Well, the courts have basically not are not going to make a decision on the jurisdictional question today. As you had mentioned, Rob, they are um, dictating a mediation process. The parties don't even meet on that until the 18th of May. Mm-hmm. Um, so in real time, what is Whitmer going to do today? And uh, the Biden administration has its own poli- its own politics, which are not favorable to Canada, to basically not want to have an intervention, which you would really expect of a, of a responsible administration, to tell Whitmer to stand down yeah. on just the pure audacity of what she's trying to do here. And again, there are those on the political left who will rate this risk of this thing spilling oil into the Great Lakes as significant. And of course, that stands at odds with the department agency within the Department of Transportation that has consistently judged otherwise. So, I mean, it is an incredibly um, ridiculous state of affairs. And again, it kind of underscores the ineffectuality of the Trudeau government vis-a-vis the Biden administration, that they can't actually engineer an intervention by Joe Biden to Gretchen Whitmer. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we've heard about this great relationship between the prime minister and the president, but we're not seeing a lot of evidence of that. This seems like exactly the kind of situation where you would hope that there's, you know, some inroads that that we've got a friend in the White House that we can convince uh, the president to to get involved here. But we're not seeing that yet, are we? No, and I mean, a lot of us thought what he did on Keystone was utterly unfair. This is even more ridiculous to have this uncertainty exist. And, you know, his secretary of energy, Jennifer Granholm, who many would know or some would know, was a former governor of Michigan herself, had had a very fractious uh, time with Enbridge back in 2010, 2011, when the Kalamazoo oil spill occurred. Her glib answer is just to leave it to the courts. And, of course, you can always have some perversity in the courts. Um, Most of us would not think that will occur ultimately, that federal jurisdiction will apply. But you can have a lot of chaos and disruption before you get to that resolution, not to mention more appeals, etc. So, again, this is clearly a situation where reasonable-minded people would see that disrupting existing infrastructure – because, you know, what's Canada going to do? Have, a, have more rail cars go to Ontario with refined products out of Western Canada? Uh, more trucks trying to get oil to them? Uh, there's only a certain amount of oil that can be put into Ontario via 
the Quebec Line 9 system of Enbridge. So, uh, and not to mention the impact it's going to have within the Upper Great Lakes region. So, you know, th- this is a real assault on common sense. It is. And I mean, look, on the one hand, we look, our, our energy sector, the U.S. energy sector, we are very much intertwined in a lot of ways. We have a, a pipeline treaty uh, going back to 1977 that's supposed to oversee all of this, or at least yes. you know, keep keep these things from becoming an issue. But on the other hand, I think, you know, Dennis, people look at it and say, well, you know, if, if Western Canada needs to supply Eastern Canada, why do we need to bring the Americans into the equation? Why do we need these uh, projects, these pipelines that go into the U.S. and back into Canada? Well, very simply because it was always more economically efficient. So back in the 1950s, when I was a child, engineers recognized that it was cheaper once you got to Winnipeg to go through the relatively easy pipelining land of um, Minnesota and Michigan rather than going through the Canadian Shield. That's why that pipe isn't going across the north of Lake Superior. And for 70 years, the two countries have been able to operate this pipeline entirely amicably until this governor decided to make this potential risk something that would be actually taken to this brink and this extremity. And, you know, those people who want to say that the treaty between Canada and the United States provides for, like, interventions to stop if safety is a material concern. Well, the fact is, it is not a material concern in this case. It may be in Gretchen Whitmer's eyes and those around her who want to see it in those terms. But as I've said before, the professional dispassionate regulator embedded in the U.S. Department of Transportation has consistently said otherwise. And so Enbridge's position is entirely reasonable. And again, one would like to think that the Joe government would be asking more of Biden publicly to step in here and uh, create some standing down on the part of Gretchen Whitmer. Well, and let's hope that happens. I mean, in the meantime, though, as you said, I mean, it seems like uh, the the case is strongly on Enbridge's side here. The facts are on Enbridge's side here. The law seems to be there's growing support for Enbridge's position here. Does this bode well, do you think, for the the pipeline staying operational? Are you feeling optimistic? As I said at the outset, I expect the pipeline still to be operating tomorrow. But I do expect Enbridge is going to have to face some fines and some other uh, attempts at financial penalties imposed on it by the governor of Michigan, and all that will get litigated. That's the best that she could do. She could try to do some crazier things by sending, you know, Michigan state troopers into some, you know, facilities, and then they could do some real damage, given that they don't know what they're doing, if they were to attempt such a thing. So uh, I think the most likely outcome tomorrow is the thing is still operating, but she will impose some financial penalties making resolution more difficult and more unreasonable. All right, we'll keep watching all of this very closely, as I'm sure you will, Dennis. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. I hope clarified some things for you. Yeah, absolutely. Always does. Appreciate the insight, Dennis. Take care. Dennis McConaughey, former executive with uh, TransCanada Energy. Uh, You can read more from him at uh, his website, Dialogues on Canadian Energy, D-O-C-E dot C-A is the website. His latest book is mentioned, Breakdown, the Pipeline Debate, and the Threat to Canada's Future. So on it goes. So this is going to be a really important week, I think, and where this all goes from here, we'll continue covering it. Yeah, we look at these uh, images out of the U.S., uh, long long lineups of gas stations, gas stations running out of gas, people filling up containers, 
even some people filling up plastic bags. There was actually an uh, advisory that went out, if you can imagine. Do not use plastic bags for, for gasoline. But anyway, none of this looks like peak demand, quite the opposite. And uh, as a result of these supply shortages, uh, yeah, the U.S. is seeing uh, price increases. And as we just talked about with Line 5, there's the potential that, uh, you know, Ontario and Quebec, for sure, probably other parts of the country could see the same thing if the Line 5 pipeline gets shut down. But as we look a little longer out, and I mean, these are, are kind of short-term situations that will hopefully be resolved, but are we getting closer to, to peak demand? Well, our next guest feels that uh, it's a long way off. And in fact, we might be on the cusp of an oil supply crisis, a supply situation that could push oil prices back up into territory we never thought we'd see again. Triple digits, $100 a barrel oil. So what's driving all of this? And um, what does it mean for consumers? What does it mean for um, the Alberta government, for example, you know, in terms of uh, what oil prices might might do and the impact that has. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, uh, Eric Nuttall joins us. Uh, he's got a great piece up at FinancialPost.com. He's uh, with Nine Point Partners, LLP. Eric, great to have you with us uh, here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Bob. Appreciate you joining us here. So what, what are you seeing out there right now that suggests maybe we're headed to a, a supply crunch? Yeah, it's really the appreciation that the road that we're on is very different than the one we've been on or stuck on for the past five odd years. And the biggest change, I would say, is the twilight of U.S. shale growth. There's been a mass change in the guiding principles of shale companies where before they used to chase growth for growth's sake, that resulted in nearly a trillion dollars of the uh, evaporation of shareholder capital. So investors themselves have forced shale companies to abandon the pursuit of growth in lieu of returning capital to shareholders. So that means less money being spent on drilling and more money being spent on share buybacks and dividends. And so the era of U.S. shale growth of one and a half to two million barrels per day in those years where that exceeded global demand growth are over. And at the same time, what we see is the imminent exhaustion of OPEC's spare capacity, meaning while they're sitting on about 6 million barrels per day of voluntarily curtailed production, given the very strong recovery and global demand that we're seeing in real time, I think they'll be able to bring on their shut-in volumes over the next, call it, six to nine months without impairing the rally in the oil price. But over the past five years, while they've really been battling with low oil prices, they've still had to meet their social spending. They've, you know, The worst thing we could do as one of the key Middle Eastern nations within OPEC is to violate that social contract with the populace. You, you simply cannot not afford or to subsidize, you know, fuel and education and such less to invite regime change. So they haven't had the ability to invest in the capacity. And then finally, the missing, the final piece of the puzzle is global optional production. This would really be like the Royal Dutch Shells and the BPs. And I'm sure listeners have seen headlines over the past several months about those very companies saying we're going to pursue investing in renewables and alternatives. We can get into reasons for that. But that means less capital going into the ground for those really big, large offshore projects that typically take four to six years. And so putting it all together, we know in real time global demand is, is improving very quickly. But at the same time, the real story about COVID, and this is what I really tried to focus people's attention on throughout much of last year, the real impact of COVID is on supply. U.S. shale growth is largely over. Global offshore is in plateau and decline. And OPEC, once they do bring on the curtailed volumes, are out of spare capacity. So it's very obvious that we're heading towards a supply crisis where demand will have to be the governor 
only balance between supply and demand, and you only do that through meaningfully higher oil prices, much, much higher than where we are today. Yeah, and it's quite stunning, really. I mean, you know, a year ago, we, we saw oil enter into negative pricing territory, which was, was shocking. And obviously, what, what preceded that was, you know, the, the price war with Saudi Arabia and Russia. So here we are now, a year later, things have really changed dramatically, haven't they? And we're seeing that in oil inventories. I'm a student of really following inventories because it's, it's your best proxy for whether the market is over or undersupplied. And what I put up, uh, some people have followed me on, on Twitter, so I put up a graph this morning showing that the uh, excesses built through last year, demand was getting just completely hammered, you know, as we were all going to be working from home forever and ever flying on a plane and, and such, as many people were telling us. All of that excess inventory that was built has now been eliminated. We're already a balance relative to the five-year average in OECD inventories, we uh, access global satellite imagery to get a, a real-time um, read on global inventories in real time, not two-month lag that the EIA gave us. And we've seen that global surplus relative to the averages just start to really plummet. And so, you know, we'll be in a balanced situation relative to uh, normal levels within the next couple of months. And so the, the rally that we've seen in, in the oil price is not just speculative. There's a fundamental underpinning given the healing of the oil market from a lot of the damage that was inflicted last year. But I just don't think people appreciate how different the road is that we're on now versus the one that we've been stuck on for so long. Well, it's interesting. What does this mean on the production side? I mean, if a, a shortage leads to price increases in, in more normal times, that would spur more production. But, you know, you talk about some of the, the limits around production that, that have, have arose, and maybe we have different issues here in, in Canada. But how does it translate to uh, on the production side then in, in trying to meet this demand? Yeah, so the real conversation is about short cycle versus long, long cycle production. Short cycle would be U.S. shale. You know, you drill a well today, it comes on in four to six months. And that really was the disrupting feature of the energy markets for so long because anytime you had a price rally, these companies would go out, you know, increase CapEx, and you get a, an almost immediate production response within you know, four to six months. Given those companies no longer have the motivation, and you could debate the ability, given the exhaustion of a lot of the Tier 1 inventory, the very best acreage that they had, that they're limited to spending about 70% of their cash flow. And so my estimate is, you know, at about $70 oil, they could grow by about four to 500,000 barrels, probably, which, which may sound like a lot, but that's only half of global oil demand in normalized times. So the, the question is, where is the remainder oil going to come from? And is it the global super majors where, again, the, the projects that were sanctioned brought on in an era of $100 oil, those have all come online. We've ha- we're in year seven of falling global investment worldwide. And let's say you're the, you're the CEO of Royal Dutch Shell. You know, you're, you're pledging to let your production fall by 2% per year. You're plowing more money into alternatives. But let's go extreme. Let's just say oil goes to 500 bucks a barrel. And you say, okay, this is, we shouldn't have pivoted. Okay, we were wrong. Foolish us. Let's go pursue production growth. Well, we're talking about hugely complex, hugely expensive projects that, again, take four to six years to bring on. So even if those companies, which are effectively abandoning traditional hydrocarbons, even if they admit the error of their way, we're looking at four to six years. So I'm challenged to see where short cycle immediate production growth can come from. And that's why the, the, the basis of my argument is supply cannot react, therefore demand must. You know, the projection of inventory falling that I, I have simply cannot happen. And so it speaks to the oil price has to go high enough 
so that it's too expensive to fly, you know, to go on a vacation. It's too expensive to drive. Um, you know, you, you've got to instill that elasticity of, of behavior to an oil price. And historically speaking, when you look at, okay, when is the burden on the global economy going to be too big? It's when oil expenditure is about 6% of GDP. Just boiling that down, what the heck does that mean? It means that you start killing demand at about $120 to $140 per barrel. And so that's where I think we're headed in the years ahead. Yeah, that's the other side of it. I mean, it's easy in Alberta to look more narrowly and and just think about, okay, well, higher oil prices, that's good for Alberta's bottom line. But yeah, there, there's there's a lot of big downside to $100, $120, $140 a barrel. Well, I think the horrificness that our industry, you know, I, I grew up, you know, I was born in Ottawa, I live in Toronto, and I'm heavily involved in, in the oil practices. I kind of take a cross-national uh, perspective of things. And, you know, the misery that we've all lived with in different ways over the past several years, there are significantly better times ahead. And in fact, you could argue that we're there now. You know, it's probably not going to translate to a mass increase in employment because I think companies are suffering from PTSD in the past couple of years. You know, you have investors like myself saying equity prices are so unbelievably mispriced, so low, the companies should not be pursuing growth. You know, they should be buying back their own shares, giving dividend increases. So that means less demand for labor, less demand for drilling, et cetera. But, you know, when you look at what's the industry cash flow at $70, at $80, at $90, even allowing for vast amounts of return of capital, it still shows that the demand for drilling is going to go up, the demand for labor is going to go up. So there just may be a bit of a lag over the next year, maybe two, with the oil price. But eventually, you can see significantly better days ahead. Well, that's a positive note to leave it on. Uh, Eric, has mentioned, people can find your piece. It's up at uh, financialpost.com today. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. My pleasure. All the best. That's uh, Eric Nuttall. He's a partner, senior portfolio manager with Nine Point LLP, financialpost.com. You can read his thoughts on where this is all headed. And so some interesting points that he makes about what's driving all of this and what the impact of all of this might be. Yeah, it's been quite a roller coaster of uh, controversy, confusion, emotion when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine, which... You know, and part of that's on the company, part of it's on governments, and part of it's on regulators, right? It's just, it's been a lot of different issues. Uh, it's pretty clear. Well, a couple of things are that this is a good vaccine, and we're seeing evidence of that in, in the progress they've made in the United Kingdom. But we've also learned uh, more about this uh, rare clotting side effect that's associated with this vaccine. And so that, that's shaping our approach. We saw yesterday uh, Ontario and Alberta take a step back from this vaccine, at least in terms of offering it as a first dose. So how do we balance all of this? How do we more effectively communicate all of this? And, and is there also something we can do uh, to really mitigate that risk while still maximizing the benefits that this uh, vaccine can deliver. There's a really interesting uh, piece in the National Post today uh, looking at this very question. Joining us uh, to talk more about this issue, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Harry, Harry Rakowski, a cardiologist, a clinician investigator with Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Rakowski, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So let me get your sense of kind of where we're at and, you know, everything we, we've kind of been um, agonizing over in, in recent days and weeks here and some of the decisions made this week on the AstraZeneca vaccine. You know, you made some very good points in your introduction. The AstraZeneca vaccine is a critical vaccine for the world. It was used for about 35 million people in Europe. 
that helped to really suppress the third wave in England. And they're now really uh, out of the third wave and getting back to normal. And for the rest of the world, it's critically important because it's an inexpensive vaccine. It's easy to store. So how does it fit into our Canadian plans uh, where now we're getting more mRNA vaccines? But it still has an important role to play because we don't have enough people fully vaccinated. We have so many people with a single dose with a delay to 16 weeks and that first shot, first strategy is effective up to a point, but we don't know if these variants of concern are going to pierce that immunity, and especially for older people, whether they're still at very substantial risk, but they're still the ones that are dying. So you make the point, well, okay, if we're now worried about this um, thrombosis problem, it's really serious, right? Even if it's only in one in 100,000 or a little less, it happens often to young people, they're healthy, and they die unexpectedly. But there is a test that you can do, which is a blood platelet test, which is similar to what we do when we use heparin, and it has this complication in a much more frequent way. The allergic reaction that the vaccine causes to your blood platelets that cause clotting is very similar to this other condition, and the marker is that low blood platelet level. And if you can recognize it, you can deal with it early on by giving an antidote and preventing the clotting complication. And that's an important point, right? Because, I mean, this this is potentially complicated once it gets to the point of presenting rather severe symptoms, and it can have some really terrible outcomes. But th- the initial step is is pretty straightforward, this, this initial blood test. So tell us a bit more about that blood test and what we're looking for as kind of the first step in all of this. It's a very simple blood test that you do routinely when you do a blood count on somebody. You check their hemoglobin, the, the part that makes uh, carries oxygen in the blood, the white cells that fight infection, and platelets that cause clotting. So this is a simple blood test done in tens of thousands of people or more every day. The challenge is if we give 100,000 vaccine shots of AstraZeneca, do we have the bandwidth to test all these people a week later to see if their blood platelet count is normal? Do we just do it for vaccine-hesitant people? Uh, We've identified that this complication occurs more frequently in people under 50 and in women. You know, can we target them? We at least have to have that discussion before we abandon AstraZeneca as a useful vaccine. So to what extent do we make use of that? I, I don't know if it's realistic that everybody who got the AstraZeneca vaccine go in a week later and get this blood test. But, you know, given that it's relatively straightforward, we could probably be doing more of it. So where, where's the balance there? You know, it's, it's a good point. I think the balance, certainly in my practice, has been if somebody said, should I take the AstraZeneca vaccine? The answer was that... Uh, yes, it's still a good vaccine. Here's the complication rate. If you're in a group that is going to benefit from early vaccination, then take the first shot. If you're anxious about it, you know, I can do a blood platelet test at a week. Um, so that, I think, has been effective for that subgroup of people. Can we, do we have the ability to do it in everybody? You know, I don't know. Perhaps not. But we have the ability to do it in a lot of people. And if we can target the people who are most at risk, uh, then it's, it's a valuable thing to do. It's also going to be an issue for some of the people 
who may not now want a second dose of AstraZeneca, again, for reassurance, because yeah. most of the complications occur after the first dose, not the second dose. So those people are unlikely to have the complication. But again, anything we can do to overcome vaccine hesitancy at this point is going to be very useful. Well, and what have you found in, in patients? Because, yeah, I think that that is a big issue. And, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot less risk when it comes to that second dose, but it's, you know, it can still happen. So how do we reassure people or put their minds at ease? It's not so much reassuring that it can't happen. I think one of the concerns about increased vaccine hesitancy has been a lack of transparency. Uh, the initial response was, well, this isn't really a complication of vaccination. And there are already a lot of anti-vaxxers out there saying, oh, you're being misled by the government, vaccines are terrible, you know, with totally untrue comments on complication rates. This is the only complication that's been identified in these viral vector vaccines, the AstraZeneca and the J&J. It doesn't occur in the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer. So it's unique to this subset of vaccines that, that are still important to us. So with that second dose, uh, I think people need to feel comfortable because their risk is very low and their risk of getting COVID and having a bad complication remains much higher. Those people who got AstraZeneca first are going to have to wait a long time to get a second Pfizer dose. They tend to be younger. There's still a lot of older people that need to be vaccinated. We've, we've only double vaccinated maybe 3% of our population. So it's been a political issue as well as a health benefit issue because it politically sounds better to say we vaccinated 30% of the population, even though it's inadequate to fully protect you. It helps a lot, but in that older group, it's totally not enough. In terms of the communication, and I mean, we, we don't really have any one individual or body that we've assigned to be the main voice on these issues. And, and so Canadians hear from chief uh, medical officers of health, we hear from health ministers, we hear from political leaders, we hear from uh, NACI and, and their recommendations. And sometimes that's in conflict. Sometimes, you know, it, it, it adds to confusion. I mean, are, are you concerned at the, the level of communication around all of this? The level of communication has been a real issue. I think NACI and FAC, uh, Public Health Agency of Canada, and, and the uh, body overseeing uh, vaccination decision-making haven't always been on the same page. And the health minister, Patty Hadju, hasn't been on the same page. I mean, she was asked in question period, you know, uh, are, should we, do you still believe that you should get, you know, the first shot available to you? She pivoted basically said, ask your doctor. I mean, that's really not the kind of advice that you want from the federal minister of health. You want the federal health minister of health to say, look, we have scientific bodies looking at this. Here's the message. The message is clear. We're only going to change that message if facts change. And if those facts change, we're going to be honest and transparent and tell you the truth. And then you can make an informed decision the way you do about any treatment. We'll see how this all plays out going forward. We'll leave it there for now. Appreciate uh, your insight uh, on this, Dr. Rakowski. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you very much. Nice being here. All the best. Likewise. Uh, Dr. Harry Rakowski, uh, some thoughts from him on this uh, whole situation around AstraZeneca. He's a cardiologist, clinician, investigator of the Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. 
Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's about understanding what those concerns are. It's about being honest and upfront and uh, explaining all of this. And, you know, risk communication can, can be uh, a tricky thing. But I think at the same time, he makes an interesting point that maybe we should be making more use of that uh, simple blood test, you know, to get a better sense of, of what's out there and, and maybe just to, to help reassure people. Because this kind of clotting is, is very specific. And it almost seems counterintuitive because it's about a low platelet count. And normally it would be the other way around, like, right? A higher plate count, uh, platelet count could lead to, to clotting. And a low platelet count normally wouldn't. But in this instance, it does. So it's the kind of thing that it's, it's one of the first signals that maybe there's, there's a potential issue. Some, some new guidance with regard to AstraZeneca Ontario is, is going to stop giving it its first dose out of concern over rare side effects. Alberta's doing something similar, but it's more about the availability of doses for second doses. And yeah, there's been a lot of mixed messages over that. I mean, despite the fact that you know, we've got a lot of compelling data out of the UK about uh, this vaccine's effectiveness. And we're seeing a lot of different uh, evidence uh, emerging regarding you know, the impact of these vaccines or even the impact of a, a first dose. You know, the prime minister today talking about our one dose summer, our two dose fall. Um, but, yeah, we are asking, you know, the, these first doses to do a lot of heavy lifting and helping us to turn the corners. So what is the evidence telling us about all of this? Joining us uh, for some thoughts. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Zane Chagla, Associate Professor of Medicine at McMaster University, specializing in internal medicine, tropical medicine, infectious diseases. Uh, Dr. Chagla, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. No problem. No problem. So AstraZeneca, again, I, I think, you know, it's... Some mixed messages here, maybe, or or some some of that vaccine regret, perhaps for those who have it. I mean, what, what do you make of all of this? Yeah, I mean, so, so there's a few things at play here, right? So one is the how often this clotting issue seems to be occurring with AstraZeneca. Well, we got information mm-hmm. from Europe and the United Kingdom. It was about one in a hundred thousand. Much of that data was retrospective, so us looking in the past to see that that one in a hundred thousand. When you start actually doing some of the looking going forward, including in Europe and, and in Norway and other places, it actually seems like that risk is lower and I'm sorry, higher. And and it's not uncommon, right? When you start looking for something, you start finding it in that sense. Um, and so, you know, now we have another set point in terms of where this side effect profile occurs. And so, you know, for the AstraZeneca vaccine, number one, it's an effective vaccine. There's nothing wrong with its efficacy. That's completely off the table here. It's how to balance this side effect profile with what's going on in one's community to say, okay, what's the average individual's risk of getting COVID-19 and then then predicting how you know often they'll end up in ICU and how often they'll die and how do you balance that against the clotting risk at that point? Well, in Ontario yeah. right now, our rates are coming down, our community transmission is getting better. Uh, and so, you know, that, that scale has all, all of a sudden just tipped and, and basically said, you know, right now we probably have a, a higher risk right now of having someone having a clot than dying of COVID-19, particularly in those younger age groups. And add to that, you know, in Ontario, we're going to be starting to do 40-year-olds with Moderna and Pfizer within this week. So, you know, you can't really even make the argument that it's going to be a long time off to get your mRNA vaccine. But that calculus doesn't always fit in every place, right? In places where the pandemic is getting much worse, where there's no line of sight to Pfizer and Moderna, then absolutely getting AstraZeneca is a fantastic idea because your risk benefit always favors benefit there. 
Um, but, you know, this is where this calculus is coming in now. As things get better, as the clotting risk is now targeted a bit higher, people are now being put on that scale of risk-benefit. For people who got the vaccine, they did the right thing, though. They're not represented right now in hospitalizations. They're not represented now in terms of ICU stays. They're not represented now in cases. In fact, in Ontario, there's been very, very few breakthrough cases of people who have gotten an AstraZeneca dose. Um, It's simply, you know what, our supply of mRNA vaccine is here. It's pretty strong. We're going to be vaccinating to the age group where we would be giving AstraZeneca anyways. You know, right now, the risk-benefit is starting to favor more risk than benefit. And, and again, you know, we want to do what's best for the population. And, and that, that question about the, the second dose for those who've had AstraZeneca, and there was even some talk today that maybe those people might just start over with a, a two-dose mRNA. But there may be some, some good evidence that uh, an MRA is a, mRNA as a booster is effective. Mm-hmm. What's your sense on that? Yeah, so, so there's a big trial ongoing. And, you know, these are different vaccines, but they essentially do generate the same target. They, they make your body make the spike protein in different ways. And so, you know, theoretically, the, the combination of the two should theoretically give not the same action or better action as you're doing it two separate ways. Um, we just don't have the clinical data yet. There's a large trial that's about a 1,000 individuals in the UK, which is starting to get through its data now, and so we'll hopefully have some access to that. Um, but, you know, again, you, j- it's, you would switch over if you had that data because it is such an important thing that this vaccine is such an, uh, an important process for a country. We want to make sure it's data-driven first before we make this giant shift. Um, we are seeing that the risk of the second dose of AstraZeneca is around one in a million. It seems to be a bit less than the risk of the first dose. And so, you know, pivoting those people to a second dose of AstraZeneca, 90 to 120 days, what the manufacturer actually describes, is also not an unreasonable strategy. But, you know, it's, it's important that we get this information in terms of whether or not boosting with an mRNA vaccine is safe, it's effective, and in fact gives you better or the same efficacy as getting the second dose. Now, in terms of, you know, the efficacy of these vaccines, and we're, we're seeing mm-hmm. some really good real-world evidence about just how well they work, there, there is that question about whether we're asking first doses to do too much heavy lifting. I don't know much was made of this data out of Qatar that, that you had uh, addressed and been writing about last week. So where, where's the evidence pointing us at this, at this point about Canada's strategy? Yeah, so there's not a lot of countries that have done, you know, a, a delayed first dose strategy that have published a lot. Not that a lot haven't done it, but again, haven't published a significant amount from it, right? So the Qatar study was done in people that kind of got the dose on label in terms of 21 to 28 days, got their second dose. They looked at people at the first and second dose, uh, and then they, they kind of said, okay, you know, the, the benefit seemed about 95% in people that got the second dose. Great, that's exactly what the clinical trials showed. They were slightly less after that first dose. So there's a bit of a hoopla around it being 30% and people being very scared. But the authors even admitted they looked at people, you know, one hour after getting their vaccine would be counted as a case. And so you really can't do that. You have to count people 14 days or later. Otherwise, the vaccine isn't working and your risk is the same as not getting a vaccine. What we're seeing out of places like Scotland, England, in terms of their data sets, you're seeing a significant effect in terms of hospitalization, you know, up to 60, 70% reduction in high-risk groups like 70, 80-year-olds. 
you're seeing a reduction in death, you're seeing a reduction in symptomatic COVID-19, not 100%, not the 95%, but probably 60 to 70% range. Uh, and you're actually seeing decreased transmissibility. So a good study that came out of Scotland, I as a healthcare worker get my first dose of vaccine, my partner's risk of COVID-19 went down by 30%. And so really, you know, again, from a population standpoint, getting a lot of those first doses of vaccine in is going to have profound effects, not only in our healthcare system, but likely on the, the driver of the pandemic altogether. Uh, and again, you know, it, it's important that we uh, we continue with the strategy while the while resources are scarce and then getting second doses into people as there's been an equitable access to a first dose by many. Yeah, and there's certainly more optimism, I think, at the moment that we're going to be able to do second doses before that that 16-week upper limit. I think it was always meant to be an upper limit as opposed to a a straight-up guideline. But what, what do you think about that side of it? Yeah, I, I don't. I honestly, you know, looking at the supply coming in and how good it's looking in June and July, I would be hard pressed to say some people would get to four months. There may be the odd person, but I would not be surprised to see three months uh, in some groups, groups even a little bit less to getting that second dose, especially as the supplies are picking up over the next couple of months. Um, so yeah, I mean, four dose was the uh, four month was the you know upper range, but I really do think we're going to be seeing a little bit less than that for most people. And it's interesting. One one question that kind of dropped off the radar a little bit is the question of those with previous infection and whether a first dose might count as a booster and whether that might free up other doses. Um, where, where are we at on that? Yeah, so yeah, there was really interesting data that, again, for people that were COVID infected, um, where their, their, their numbers, you know, for antibody levels were the same as people who got two doses when they got one dose of vaccine. The, the question, and I guess the counterpoint to all of that is, yes, the antibody levels are high, but what does that mean for the individual? Are they as protected? And that data really isn't there. It is being generated from places like England right now. Um, but, you know, it, again, you know, it's not clear whether or not that's long-lasting protection or that's short-lasting protection uh, that's boosted. And so right now we're, we're still putting two doses into people that have been prior infected. You know, we don't know what the long-term issue is here. If we're, we're just wasting doses here or, again, you know, is there something under the radar that their immune responses last six months to a year longer? Um, but, it, you know, certainly is an area of interest. I thought, you know, we would have moved on this as some other countries had. But I think that the counterpoint is, again, we just don't know clinically from an individual standpoint outside of antibody levels from their real-life risk. Does this change things more than just being uh, getting a first dose or, or getting a second dose in those individuals? Yeah. We'll leave it there. Always appreciate the insight, uh, Dr. Chagla. Thanks for joining us here today. No problem. All the best. All right. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious disease specialist, associate professor of medicine, McMaster University. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.